Hi, this is Carolyn Nowinski Cowell. I messed up. I'm right all the from the start. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just asked you to do doctor. Okay, I'm gonna start again. Okay. Hi, this is Dr. Carolyn Nowinski Collins, CEO and co-founder of Dimensioning. And Subtech to me is a movement to shine light upon the market for tech-based solutions to problems that affect billions of people on our planet. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Carolyn Nowinski-Collins, the CEO of Dimension Inc.'s. Carolyn is a total powerhouse, having been recognized by organizations and awards such as Chicago Business's 40 Under 40, Notable Women in Manufacturing, and Tech 50. In 2020, SME recognized Carolyn as one of the 30 leaders transforming manufacturing. But the manufacturing that Carolyn does is quite unique. She manufactures 3D structures that enable cells to think that they are inside the human body and restores their function. Dimension Inks is a next-generation biomaterials and biofabrication company developing 3D-printed therapeutic products that direct cells to rebuild healthy tissue. They are currently developing medical products for various therapeutic applications, ranging from bone regeneration to fertility preservation. We cover both of these areas in today's interview. To learn more, visit www.dimensioninx.com. That's D-I-M-E-N-S-I-O-N-I-N-X.com. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Brittany. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Where are you calling in from today? From Chicago, Illinois. Chicago. Is it warm there yet? We, um, I think, are hitting the 90s today, so it's uh, it's on its way. Of course, last week was like, I think it was 50s one day. So, oh my you god, know, oh, it's Chicago. all over the place. I went to Chicago twice. Not known for yeah, and I, both times I was like, this place is really windy and super cold. <laughs> like, wow, the summers really are wonderful most of the time, though. So come back. All right. All right. All right. I'll need to do like a winter bird thing, right? Where I I go for the nice weather. (laughs) Well, let's kick off their interview with learning more about you and your background. Um, Where are you from? You're, you know, you are a doctor. So tell us about your journey. And then how did you end up here 3D printing things for the body? It's kind of a exciting journey. Tell us more. Yeah, well, I would say my whole entrepreneurial journey started when I was in med school. Um, Dimensionings is my third company. My first one I started at my third year of medical school, and it was a biotech company. It was uh, gene therapy for brain cancer. Fascinating technology, really interesting and desperate population uh, for some sort of treatment. Unfortunately, the technology didn't quite work as planned, uh, but even more so kind of crashed and burned during the financial crisis of 0708. But it was an awesome experience. And it, what led me to was you know, this, whole, <laughs> this whole experience ever since, where I would really characterize it as my whole, like the theme of my career has been how to turn technology into products. 
and it started with that first company, but has really evolved over the last you know, 15 years where I realized I like the very earliest stages of business building and how Dimension Inc. came to be for me was this blend of manufacturing and medicine. Um, so my roots are in medicine, but in 20, 2011, 2012, I ended up uh, focusing on an effort around the digital future of industries. And while I thought it was going to take me further into healthcare and its digital future, in fact, it took me into manufacturing and its digital future. And in 2014, then started my second company, which was an innovation center focused on the digital future of industries, starting with manufacturing. And so I became totally engrossed in how advanced manufacturing was going to change our economy and change our world, change the way we make things. And I really like making things. And I learned that about myself. And so when I was looking for what I was going to do next in 2019, I was very fortunate to team up with my now partners in crime, Ramil Shaw and Adam Jacobs. And here we are at Dimension Inc. where medicine meets manufacturing. That is so awesome. What is advanced manufacturing? Uh, that is a great question. And one that I'll say, I'd like to think it's more easily answered today than it was in 2011, 2012, when people first started talking about this idea of advanced manufacturing. But it's basically using all the tools that are available to us now to be able to make things better. And so whether that's data, how do we use data to make things better, data about the supply chain, data about machines, et cetera, or it can be other things like advanced materials or advanced ways of making things. So at Dimension Inc., uh, I like to say that we exist today because the engineering tools that we have available to us, things like 3D printing, additive manufacturing, for example, and now the materials that are available to us. And so our company at our core is a materials company, which we can talk more about, now are at the right time where we can now engineer biology. So we've learned enough about, or they're still learning a lot more, but there's advances in what we know about biology that we can now engineer towards biology. And without those tools like additive manufacturing and advanced materials, we wouldn't be able to do that. So that's how we apply things like additive man or excuse me, advanced manufacturring to medicine applications at dimensionings and other companies. Can you give some other examples just for our listeners in terms of like, if they looked around their lives, what could they see and be like, oh, that's because of advanced manufacturing that that exists? Um, have you ever personalized your running shoes? Uh, have you ever uh, yeah. gone online and designed what they look like uh, or maybe, you know, how much cushion is in oh. those heels? Yeah. That's advanced manufacturing. It's feeding okay. different data to be able to make something, in this case, a running shoe. People are now making all sorts of designer shoes because of advanced manufacturing. And in that case, it's a combination of data as well as and it's data about the actual design of the shoe, but it's also supply chain data and being able to make sure that shoe can get to you and not take you know three months for that to happen, but maybe takes three days for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And then it's also being able to use new manufacturing technologies like additive manufacturing to have a custom shoe rather than you know setting up an entire manufacturing plant and all the you know, tools that go into that. Um, for mass production, now we can have mass customization because of these kinds of things that are available to us. Got it. Understood. Love it. Also, I'm so <laughs> happy I'm wearing my 3D printed uterus earrings. Um, <laughs> it is very, very fitting. Appropriate. Very fitting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell us, what is Dimension Inks? 
We are a regenerative medicine company, and we focus on how to use our biomaterials and our biomanufacturing platform to direct cells to behave in the right way. So for us, we, it's all about the microenvironment. If we give cells a happy place, they'll behave in the way we want them to behave. And so our goal is to use the advanced manufacturing technologies we have available to us to give cells that happy place. I know that that is a, a very brief pitch, <laughs> what you do. So let's go a layer deeper. What, is, what does it mean to give cells a happy place and make them behave in ways that you want them to in order to regenerate regenerative medicine? Which I guess, let's define that. What is regenerative medicine, if I could say it? <laughs> yeah, well, so, you know, and, and that's a really great question to start from because I think people think if if you even have a notion of where regenerative medicine means, maybe you think of like, oh, it's regenerating tissue. It's growing a new organ. It's printing an organ. You know, maybe that's the concept you have. But really, I think regenerative medicine is much more broadly than that. And I think of it as restoring function. And I think that's generally speaking of how people are thinking about regenerative medicine today is we don't necessarily need to recreate a whole organ to be able to restore function of that organ. What's important is that we're getting that function right and we're getting things behaving in the right way and our, our body behaving in the right way. So I think in regenerative medicine, is the, it's the tool set that's now available to us to treat disease, treat debilitation by restoring function. All right. All right. I'm getting clearer and clearer on what you're doing. <laughs> and so how do happy cells restore function of something? Well, um, so to restore or regenerate tissue, people think you need three things. You need cells, you need matrix or the environment around cells, and you need cues, you know, kind of the signals that to those cells. And oftentimes the signals come from that interaction between the cells and their environment. Most of the research being done today around regenerative medicine is around cell and gene therapy. Like probably 98% of the work that's being done today is focused on cell and gene therapy, certainly in the investment going into it. But doing that, we're also ignoring the importance of that matrix, the importance of that microenvironment, what's around the cells. And we increasingly know, and it's back to the point about we understand more and more about biology, we know that that environment around ourselves isn't just a bunch of collagens and laminins randomly thrown together, but in fact, it's a highly complex environment that's different depending on which tissue type you're looking at or which organ system you're looking at. And that microenvironment is incredibly important in determining cell fate. And so by being able to change that microenvironment, by giving it a healthy microenvironment, by being able to give cells the right environment to live in, we then can begin to direct cells to behave in the right way to basically determine what that cell state is going to be. And at Dimension Inc., what we focus on is designing and then creating that microenvironment for cells to be able to, to live in and for us to then be able to direct and optimize cell behavior by putting that right microenvironment in place. So cool. So you're essentially manufacturing many environments for specific cell types to be like, oh, I'm home. I'm not in a Petri dish. I'm just at home in so-and-so's body. Yeah. And like, I'm going to behave accordingly. I'm going to be a liver or I'm going to be a 
bone or I don't know, or be yeah. a brain neuron yeah. or whatever, right? Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah. And, and that's really, I mean, that's material science generally is all around us. It really is in everything around us that we interact with. And so I often use a very simple example, like a frying pan. Um, for if you're a cook or a chef, um, you might know that there are certain times where you might use a cast iron pan versus when you might use a stainless steel pan. And they're both made of the same thing. They're both made of the same types of metals, right? But their microenvironment, if you were to look under an electron microscope at what actually is happening, it would look very different. If you think about it, like the cells, and I'm using that in quotations, are organized in different ways. And it's the same thing in our body. If you organize the, the elements around you in different ways, you're going to end up having a different behavior. Just like the cast iron pan is not going to treat an egg the same way the stainless steel pan is going to. And so it's about, again, rearranging those metals, the elements, to be able to get that right environment. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Prove, a women's health company dedicated to providing information and solutions on key fertility hormones so that they can reach their goals faster. Prove founder Dr. Amy Beckley invented the first and only FDA cleared PDG test after her own battle with infertility. When she learned her seven miscarriages in two rounds of IVF could have been prevented by an inexpensive progesterone supplement, she set out to help other women better understand the success of their ovulation from home. Prove's newest and most comprehensive kit, Complete, allows women to measure all four key cycle hormones that impact conception from the comfort of her home so that she can get pregnant faster. With just one test kit, you can better understand ovarian reserve, identify up to six fertile days, and to screen for ovulation disorders that might be preventing conception. Prove is offering all of our Femtech Focus listeners 25% off of a purchase of $25 or more. Just use promo code Femtech, F-E-M-T-E-C-H, at checkout on ProofTest.com. That's Prove, P-R-O-O-V, Test.com, promo code Femtech. And now, back to the interview. I love it. All right. So with that foundational understanding, what specifically are you working on? So uh, we are, uh, well, I should say I joined the company about two and a half years ago. And it's important to put that kind of in in place because before that time, we're doing some, the company was doing some great collaborations with researchers, develop new materials that could be used in regenerative medicine applications, but we weren't developing necessarily our own products. When I came in and joined as a co-founder with my now partners, we then really started focusing more on therapeutic applications. So today, what we're doing is we develop therapeutic products. We develop products that direct cells to behave in certain ways. And um, our initial product that we began developing on a couple of years ago is for bone regeneration. And we are specifically looking at facial reconstruction and how can we use our our technologies, our manufacturing process to create essentially implants that can be put into a defect to regenerate bone, to restore the function of that bony environment. That is our, 
I, I like to think of it sometimes as like the low hanging fruit. It's about our proof point from a commercial standpoint of we can develop these materials and then these therapeutic products that regenerate tissues, in this case, bone. Where we're going and the reason that I'm here talking with you today is that there's applications in of, of, in many different parts of your body, including it for women's health, for reproductive health specifically. And so one of the newer products in our pipeline is being able to develop um, what we call an artificial ovary or a bioprosthetic ovary. And so in this case, what we're trying to do is create the right environment to direct our oocytes <laughs> to mature into eggs that are able to create a viable pregnancy. And while this may sound totally crazy, because here I'm talking about bone regeneration on one hand, and then I'm talking about artificial ovary on the other hand, the thesis is the same across both of these. The, the, the thesis is get the microenvironment right to direct cells to behave. In bone, we want them to deposit new bone. In the ovary, we're talking about the development and maturation of an oocyte. Love it so much. We are definitely going to dive into this ovary thing because that is, I saw a news article. It's what made me introduce to you. And I was like, this lady is awesome. She's making artificial ovaries at work. That's <laughs> so cool. Um, for the bone development, um, I know you mentioned facial bones, but do you think that that application could work for women's health in terms of osteoporosis, like the hips? or femurs that break often in, in older women? Yeah, you know, I, it's, a, it's a great question. I, frankly, I'd love to think about it in terms of more prevention and being able mm. to work in that sense. That's not where the technology is today. Today, it really would be more as a reaction to the unfortunate mm. challenges of osteoporosis. So having more fragile bones that lead to, you know, whether it's needing a hip replaced or a knee replaced or just generally more brittle bones, we would be a part of that solution in the aftermath for most cases. So how can you, you know, can create healthy bone where there has been unhealthy bone and being able to restore that function of that particular, that particular part of your body? Mm -hmm. This may be totally off topic or you may not know the answer, but I'm going to ask it. So, you know, one of the reasons women get osteoporosis is because estrogen is so important in bone creation. And so your the matrixes that you're making that make the cells happy and behave the way you want them to, do they, can you add things like estrogen to that, to the platform or within the body? And then like, that's how you can create it because- if so, we wouldn't, because we couldn't rely on a woman, female's regular biology to work because she doesn't have the estrogen. That's what caused the issue in the first place. So yeah. hormones adding to these platforms. Yeah. So it's funny, you're, you're tackling this from multiple different um, points, which is awesome and connecting dots in ways that usually does it, it takes people a little bit longer to connect. <laughs> so I love that you did that. So there's a couple, a couple ways to answer that question. One is we actually, we can add hormones to our products. Okay. Um, but it, you, from a biological standpoint, it may not necessarily make sense for estrogen to be added to our bone product. Cause in that case, what you really want is estrogen to be taken up into the bloodstream. And what yeah. you want it to do is to be a part of that yeah. um, bone health cascade. So it's mm -hmm. not necessarily at that site, but you bring up alluding going back to the artificial ovary idea our initial product is focused on fertility preservation and we'll get into that 
but we actually see this as part of a portfolio of products. And that portfolio is to move us more broadly into um, hormone restoration. So how are you really elongating the life of an ovary? An ovary isn't just used to create babies. (laughs) An ovary is also to be able to create hormones. And those hormones are really important for our health, as you said. And so women who have a decreased ovarian reserve because of age or because of genetics or because of cancer or some other case also have other comorbidities like you just mentioned with osteoporosis bone health goes down cardiovascular health goes down there's a number of other areas that are challenged right and all of those can be helped with right hormone balance and so in the same way that we want to be able to develop and mature the egg cells for fertility that same process is also what promotes normal hormone function. And so our portfolio is also moving into hormone restorative therapeutic products as well. And in that case, we're not just talking about fertility. We are talking about holistic women's health, including things like osteoporosis. Wow. I didn't realize my question about the bones would actually lead right back to the ovary. I was like, oh, (laughs) duh. Talking about hormones affecting how cells behave. Let's talk about ovaries and egg maturation from follicles to egg and da-da-da. So let's just jump into that. Tell me, what is an artificial ovary? Kind of paint a picture. Because in my mind, I got these 3D printed uteruses on and I'm, you know, (laughs) thinking to myself, oh, it's some sphere that they printed and it's super little mm-hmm. and I don't I don't even know like kind of paint a picture for somebody what the heck an artificial ovary looks like and then how does it function yeah yeah uh great questions and yeah it's even taken me some time to get my head around this and I know that we're continuing to learn more every day as we get deeper into our product development so let me back up and say that this idea did not originate with me. I was the beneficiary of being able to have some great partners and collaborators that we worked with. And so this all stemmed from a collaboration that started between my partners and co-founders of Dimension Inc. during their time at Northwestern University in collaboration with another group at Northwestern and at Lurie Children's Hospital. And one of those collaborators, Monica LaRonda, continues to work with us today in her lab and being able to develop this this product and this portfolio of products. So to get back to your question, though, what is it that we're actually building? And no, we are not, it's not going to look like an ovary when we're, when we're done with it, but rather it goes back to what we talked about earlier with regenerative medicine. And we're talking about restoring function. You don't need to 3D print an ovary here. What we're talking about is creating a three-dimensional environment that behaves like an ovary does. Oh, and so, the cells in that environment don't know they're not in an ovary. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. We want to trick them. We want to, we want to give them yeah. something that behaves in that way. And so how do we replicate what happens in an ovary? And what's one of the very many things that's interesting about an ovary that most people don't know is there's a lot of mechanics involved. There's a lot of physical cues. You know, I said earlier, you need cells, you need matrix, you need cues. Well, a lot of the cues in terms of ovarian function are mechanical in nature. And so a follicle in its earliest stages resides more at the cortex of the outer part of the ovary. And so, and that's a highly rigid environment. And as that follicle migrates to the center of the medullary area of the ovary, that's when it begins to mature. Kind of think about it as like maturing on its journey and of migration from the outer cortex into the inner medulla, where it then begins to activate. 
and then mature into a, a viable egg. And so if we can mimic those types of mechanical cues, and that's really oversimplifying things, of course, but you say that goes from rigid to less rigid, um, but there's a number of other things involved that our group has learned over time to be able to imitate that environment. And so we're putting together a few different environments that the cells will recognize as normal, even though in our case, they're a synthetic environment. So freaking cool. Like I'm imagining like VR, like we're putting ourselves in VR ourselves, you know, and they're like, well, it looks real. Okay. I'll behave accordingly. You know, um, yes. this is so, you know, I, it is not a silly question because if I have it, me host of this podcast, it means my listeners have it. So I'm going to ask it. I have this paradigm in my mind that ovaries are, uh, essentially, and, um, they're not filled. And I have this vision of like all these eggs, like laying around in there. I also understand the biology of their follicles and it matures into eggs. And yet I still have this thing in my mind, like this, like a little, like ovaries are baskets filled with Easter eggs in them. That's totally wrong. Right. Like tell, please, I, unless it is, but you know, you just talked about going from the outside to the center, which makes me feel like the ovary is actually filled up with stuff. It's not open. Please help me. What does the inside of ovary look like? Yes. And so you're right. It is not an open thing. And, and I love that you actually referred to it as an Easter basket, because one of the things we know is that, and is the, the follicles are moving throughout the ovary. They're encountering these different environments. And in some ways you can kind of think about it as it's going through this very porous environment. So in most cases, the, the, the microenvironments ourselves live in are highly porous and they have different levels of porosity. And that's one of the things that we can play around with. One of the levers we can tune is we're creating these microenvironments. Um, but in fact, the, the, the follicles um, have preferential ways. They like to interact with the Easter basket, if you will. <laughs> so I'm taking your, mm-hmm. I'm using your analogy in a way I've never <laughs> used before, but I'm, I'm going to try, I'm going to try here. So um, imagine that the follicle wants to nestle into the little corners of each of those different striations that the Easter basket creates. And so what we want to do is give it the right, the right place to, um, to nestle into. So as, an, as a follicle grows, it's going to grow to over 600 times its original size inside your ovaries. Okay. So imagine that, right? We're talking about, you know, such super small primordial follicles that are going to then grow to these larger complexes that are going to release bag, right? And so as it goes through this ovary and the, this you know, set of basket weaves yeah. <laughs> that's in there. Each weave needs to accommodate for the growing follicle. And so what that's one of the things we're trying to replicate is, um, is how we're able to accommodate the growth of that follicle as it progresses through that not hollow ovary environment. Oh my goodness. So cool. And so Again, another kind of real basic question, but, you know, I've always heard follicle, follicle, follicle. I'm hearing it now. I honestly still in my brain can't think about what that even means. Like, what does a follicle mean? I think of like your hair follicle, like the base of it, you know, but I'm like, I don't know if that's right to think about. Like, what what should I envision when you say follicle that then matures into an egg? 
Yeah. Um, so we're actually talking about a complex of cells. So we're talking about a group of cells and there's different types of cells in that, in that group, there's like the supporting cells. And then there's the, um, we'll call it the, the egg cell. And we need both of those to be, or both of those types of cells to stay together. And that's another piece of, I'll say the tricks that we need to provide for the follicle as it goes through this synthetic microenvironment is we need to trick it in a way that it's going to maintain its shape. It's going to be able to grow and that these cells, the granulosa cells and the, um, the oocyte are, are staying together and they're maturing together and providing the right cues and interaction points together. So at the end of the day, um, there's actually, it's a, um, another mechanical event where, and the egg is kind of pressure, pressurized, exuded, <laughs> extruded from this complex of cells. And that's ultimately what becomes fertilized and then turns into an embryo. Oh my God. It's like, it's born, it's birthed multiple times an egg, right? It's like <laughs> yeah. birthed by yeah. popping out of its like enveloped cells and then birthed into the fallopian tube and then birthed out of the vagina. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh our God. I love science. This is so fun. Um, do you envision this ever like this micro environment being able to be inside a human body, or is this always going to be like a lab, lab bench thing where somebody has to, you know, provide their follicle and then y'all do the maturation outside and like, then potentially put it back in the woman. I don't know, but like, is this ever going to be inside a human or is it always on the bench top? Um, we envision both from the work that we've done so far. So we, our first product, we are looking at developing a system that is ex vivo. And so it is outside of the body to mature the eggs. And then the mature egg would be implanted back in the body. So think IVF, but no hormone stimulation, which is its own big deal that we can come back to, but it is an, it's an ex vivo system, but it's, you know, going back to the question you said earlier about the hormone function, right? We won't get that as long as it's ex vivo. So to be able to get that hormone restoration, we would then be looking for an implanted device. And so, um, and to make things even more complicated, the device that you would use for a, for hormone restoration or the therapeutic system you'd use for hormone restoration may not be the same thing that you would use to be able to increase fertility options mm -hmm. in vivo, um, which is why we think that starting ex vivo makes sense in that case. Yeah, yeah, totally. So what I hear you saying is, you can make an artificial ovary that potentially could restore hormone function in a body, but it may not be able to also produce a mature egg and pop it into the fallopian tube and produce the hormones that pregnancy requires of it. But you could, it's like one or the other for now, at least like some futuristic yeah. version, well, maybe it could do all of it, but. Yes, we do think there is, a, um, we, on our pipeline, we do see a version that does, but that is a part that is further way off. Um, and, but kind of going back to the foundational idea around the microenvironment is that we would tailor the microenvironment to do what we want it to do. Yeah. So if we want a function that's focused more on fertility preservation or augmentation versus hormone restoration, you might want, there might be diff slight differences in how, where you implant it, how you implant it, um, what you want to expose it to. Um, so um, there's, 
Did you know, biology is complicated, if you know. Oh, biology <laughs> so is so complicated. A number complicated. of different things to think about. Yes. Yeah. If you, if you love like, um, uh, what, like exclusions to rules, please become a biologist because every semester you'll take, you'll be like, so we had to lie a little bit last semester for you to understand this concept. Now we're going to tell you about all the ways that biology doesn't accommodate that rule, right? Like that's literally yeah. biology 101. Um, so you just put in my mind that like, if we could implant these microenvironments in people to let's say restore hormones, it doesn't necessarily need to be where the ovary is anatomically. Like we could just have a yeah. chip on the back of your arm, like an insulin pump or something. And, but it's your ovary pump. Yeah. Absolutely. Ah, so cool. Yes, it's, so cool. it, it, and, and that's why for us as a company, we think about everything we mm-hmm. do is creating a bunch of different building blocks that can be yeah. used in different ways and combined in different ways to be able to create new microenvironments that are relevant for maybe a different type of function. Yeah. Did you find in the research that, um, you know, you've, so you have the bone research and then now you're doing the ovary research. Did you find any dramatic difference in like the amount of data available in terms of what the biology is of bone regeneration versus ovaries and follicles and hormones? Or did you find that because maybe it's fertility, there is a lot of data on it? Uh, there is, there is a dramatic difference between the amount of information that we have available to us, I'd say. And, um, and you know, and I, I'm not sure that it's so much of an issue in this case of, um, you know, data that's available on women's health versus, you know, bone health or something that's more applicable rather than bones are just less complex. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm not yeah. sending any bone biologists here, <laughs> but you know, there's a lot about reproductive biology that we don't know. And things that we are just learning. And so, you know, a big thing that I was episode was like, why now? Why are we looking at this stuff now? And a lot of it is because, well, we didn't know before. Like, we literally didn't have the full understanding of what the biological picture was to be able to then engineer to it. So, you know, I call it artificial ovary or prosthetic ovary, but essentially it's an engineered ovary. That's what we're doing. We are engineering biology. And so when we've, we, the more we understand, the better we can be at it. And I think there's a lot that we're still going to learn. This is the early days as it relates to being able to use these types of technologies to create therapeutics for reproductive health. I think that, and there's some really cool things going on in the industry that I can't wait to see what's happened, you know, 10 years from now. Whereas 10 years from now, I'm not sure there's going to be like a huge dramatic difference in bone. We're probably not going to be using metals and polymers the same way we are today. We're hopefully going to be moving towards more natural materials or more natural polymers. Um, but it's um, we're not going to be creating, you know, probably whole, holistically new ways because we're not going to understand a new mechanism of how bone biology works, for example. Mm-hmm. This has been so fascinating. Um, my last question about your platform and your technology is, are there other areas in women's health and wellness that you think could use your this type of a, a microenvironment platform in order to improve women's health? Uh, definitely. Uh, you think about other hormone functions, for example, like thyroid function, where thyroid disease disproportionately affects women. We talked a little bit about bone disease. I mentioned you know, cardiovascular health. But then... It, it, if, if you think about how to best use our platform, it, our platform is about creating that microenvironment. So 
So where do we have particularly complex microenvironments? And even within, you know, maybe more kind of typical women's health, I don't mean to use that like, mm-hmm. generically, but, you know, like uterine health, for example, or bladder health, areas mm-hmm. where, again, there's real specific female issues, that, medical issues that we need to tackle, those are pretty complex environments, <laughs> pretty complex tissues. And so if we can begin to understand more about them, then we can begin to um, begin to create towards it. Um, but then you know, I would say there's even things like reconstruction, the women who um, have been challenged with breast cancer and are looking for new reconstructive options for breast augmentation, for example, um, there's applications there, there's um, applications in, um, uh, in really every part of your body. Um, and as you and I and your listeners well know, there's a number of disease states disproportionately affect women that maybe aren't, you know, aren't addressed enough. And I hope our platform will be able to begin to shed some light there. So cool. Yeah. I'm just like flooding with ideas in my brain, like pelvic floor health. Like how can you strengthen those muscles or, you know, the urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, like so many options. So, oh, so Mm -hmm. excited to see what you guys do next. Um, Our our two last questions are questions our listeners really love. Um, The first one is, is there an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Something that maybe one of the listeners could take on. I'll say, for, and I'm biased. Okay, I've spent my whole career focused on deep tech and kind of um, deep science types of endeavors. And I think that's an area that's not well addressed. And I know that's not a specific clinical indication. You're probably looking for that. But I'll say some of that deep science, we just, we, you know, when I was just talking about reproductive biology, there's a lot that we still don't know. And it, it, there are, are I think, um, areas like menopause, like fertility, where we need to get, we need to tackle some of the deep science issues too, to be able to create truly novel and disruptive solutions. And I hope that more entrepreneurs and more investors really look to those spaces as areas where there can be some really great returns and also touch a number of patients. My understanding of deep tech, it comes from my time in Houston, where there was a lot of companies trying to um, essentially make new ways of energy, like literally brand new ways to even manufacture energy from the air and stuff. And so that's deep tech. And it's kind of these like Mm -hmm. um, moonshot, like, damn, if this works, we'll live on the moon, like, (laughs) you know, kind of stuff. And, um, And then also this like microbiology environments outside, 3D printing organs and things like that. Um, do you think that maybe potentially the lack of women's health focus in deep tech has to do with the gender of most people in deep tech? Again, I may be biased because in Houston energy, it was mostly white dudes, honestly, working on anything (laughs) deep tech, it was always a white dude. And so do you think that maybe I'm biased, but is there women working in deep tech or is it like not they're up and coming and like that, therefore you in the future, it'll have more femtech or tell us more about that. Yeah. So I have absolutely zero data, (laughs) and anecdotal stories. I'll tell you, you know, so one of my co-founders, Ramil Shah, is a female material scientist. And I would imagine that I'm trying to think 
most of the material scientists I know are men. Again, I have no documented mm-hmm. <laughs> data to suggest this, but I, you know, I think material science is a big piece of deep tech. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, probably just, you know, our team has an interest in this area, which has guided us down this path. There's a number of different opportunities we could have pursued, as I mentioned. And one of the reasons that we decided to go down their reproductive health is because we felt like we could do something that's really different and disruptive that takes advantage of all the cool things that we know and the new technologies that are available to us. We're just applying it here to start. Um, And so, yeah, I, um, I hate to say it, but I mean, I think that there could be one reason we don't think about these types of clinical applications in that area, but yeah. hopefully more and more. And, and this is not to discredit my other co-founder who happens to be a white male and is a brilliant scientist. <laughs> but we love them. We, we love definitely them. have some bias. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I just talked to someone this morning that we were talking about engineers are so important to femtech because without software engineers, I had a founder say, mm-hmm. yeah, we had our, we hired our first male software engineer for our fertility company. And he had to code the question, how on average, how long does your period last? And he made the drop down go to a hundred days. And so she was like, <laughs> yeah, if a female coder was asked, oh, she likely wouldn't put more than 30 days. Otherwise it would be like, go to a doctor. Like, but he was like, oh yeah, periods could probably last a hundred days. I'm sure. So like I'll code it to be like, so if you don't have female engineers, buy the contact. Yes. <laughs> yes. You're missing some stuff. Um, our last question is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Well, I think I think there's a few things. And I think what you and you know, your community that you've built has, I think, been you know, done a really great job of is just shining a light on just awareness building. I think mm-hmm. these are big markets with big opportunities for returns, because I think that's, that's a big piece of it. Um, and then, you know, we need... We probably need more female investors investing in more female entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, there is still very little investment that goes here. And I think there's it's challenged by sometimes we're talking about uncomfortable topics and they shouldn't be. And so the more awareness that groups like yours bring to the fact like these don't have to be uncomfortable topics. Like we can have very open conversations about this and with all different genders. <laughs> and so um, if we can, you know, eliminate some of that discomfort, show there's real returns here, and just, you know, continue to think about diversity among the investors and the entrepreneurs they invest in, I think we'll we'll be able to hit some big strides. I love it. Carolyn, thank you so much for your time today. You are amazing, like just total badass ovary making scientists. I love it. So thank you for all you do. <laughs> thank you, Brittany. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Carolyn Nowinski-Collins, the CEO of Dimension Inks. To learn more, visit DimensionInks.com. That's D-I-M-E-N-S-I-O-N-I-N-X.com.
Be sure to give the show a five-star review and share it with a friend. Join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org and join the thousands of other femtech founders, investors, and mentors advancing women's health. While in the virtual community, sign up to be a FemPro member for only $15 a month and get access to our assets, such as the Femtech Company Database and our self-guided Femtech Accelerator. Keep an eye out for our monthly Femtech Book Club, which happens the last Wednesday of every month, and subscribe to our newsletter. Last but not least, please consider setting up a recurring monthly donation to Femtech Focus. We are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.